Hello, my name is Derek G and this is Derek G Speaks Volumes. And we're finally doing it, guys. We're finally doing it. It is the Dev Hines, the Blood Orange, the Lightspeed Champion episode. This is a podcast that puts music in context, celebrates music and talks about the things in music that I love. I'm obviously the host of the self-titled podcast, Derek G Speaks Volumes. And let me just start with this. I have been really afraid to do this podcast for a long time. I think because I don't even know to what extent Dev Hines has influenced me until I really put the time in. I think that as I put in the research, I realized and has cemented for me just how important this artist has been in my life and how important it is to document or celebrate or talk about for myself and for you the importance, the significance of one Dev Heinz. So if you don't know anything about him, this will be a great beginner's guide. If you are a fan of him, maybe I will shed some light on my perspective on how I think he exists in the world of music and how important he is. Or it's a bit of a celebration. You can just sit back, relax and enjoy my perspective on Dev Heinz. So the title of this episode is The Magnetism of Dev Heinz slash Blood Orange. The alternate title is The Influence and Inspirations of Dev Heinz. Maybe it's a beginner's guide to Dev Heinz. But my opening statement is that Dev Heinz, I think, is one of the most important artists of his generation. Now, it sounds very hyperbolic to say, but when you think about not only is this successful and influential and well-respected artist, but he is also someone that is a prolific songwriter and producer who has touched so much of the music industry that when you think about the spider web of artists that he's touched either through an artist or as a producer. There are so many he's touched and also how many he's influenced. But he also comes from a long lineage of diverse artists that I can't wait to talk about in terms of influences. So I've done episodes on Reach Sakamoto, I've done episodes on East Tumor, and I think Dev Hines is very much up my alley, especially as someone that grew up listening to him. He's a popular pop artist, but he's still fringing on the mainstream. So, hey, if I can do my part to shine a light on and celebrate Dev Hines, I'm going to, especially because I anticipate that there will be a record coming out soon because he's been quiet in terms of feature length albums since 2018. So if we're on the corner, maybe that's good fortune. Firstly, my theory or thesis or essay topic is on the magnetism of Dev Hines, because I think a lot about Dev Hines' success is around magnetism, about the ability to attract scenarios and situations that have formed the identity that is Dev Hines. So whether it's through instinct, whether it's through serendipity, whether it's through creating a world in which he can be magnetic to the right situations, I think it is crucial to how fluid he is in his art, in his music and his creation that has made him the man and artist he is today. But before we get into that, I want to get into his backstory so we can learn a bit more about him. So his name is David Joseph Michael. Born in 1985, I believe he's born in Houston, Texas, but I also saw another article to say that he was born in Sierra Leone. His mom is Sierra Leonean, so I'm not sure, but he was raised in Essex and was classically trained in cello and piano. But outside of his interest in music, I think he's even more interested in sport. He talks a lot about spending a lot of time playing table tennis, basketball, soccer, or slash football, and perhaps that translates to how he's able to live 
life and then express it through music rather than live music and express not much outside of that. And he even says he's like plays basketball or something with Julian Casablancas, which I think is funny. So in 2004, he was in a group called the Test Icicles, which was kind of like a emo alternative rock band. They broke up in 2006 and he donned his first moniker, which was Lightspeed Champion, which is the first artist that I became aware of in his eras. He released a couple albums under the name Lightspeed Champion, first one being Falling Off the Lavender Bridge, and he worked with Mike Mogus, who is a prolific songwriter who's worked with Bright Eyes, First Aid Kit, Phoebe Bridges, Connor Oberst, She and Him, which I think is quite foundational to his sound. Then he dropped the moniker of Lightspeed Champion and came back as Blood Orange and released four albums, Coastal Grooves, Cupid Deluxe, Freetown Sound, and Negro Swan, which is the latest one in 2018. But he's so prolific that he's released a bunch of different mixtapes. He's released music as EPs, short EPs. He released one called Four Songs in 2022 with RCA. He's also scored numerous TV shows and films, including working with Gia Coppola, part of the Coppola family, with the film called Mainstream. He made the soundtrack for Luca Guadino's We Are Who We Are on HBO, which is a really Philip Glassian type sound, a really enjoyable soundtrack because I listened to that as I was researching this. He's also scored Naomi Osaka's documentary. So he's done a lot of composition as well. And I think would be a lot of his bread and butter, which would help him be a New York-based, Manhattan-based artist. Before I get into the influences and break down the magnetism of Dev Hines, I want to talk a little bit about my personal experience with him. So I first came across him with his first album, Under the Lavender Bridge, because I bought that CD, that blue covered CD, where he had his moppy indie emo hair. He had a red cardigan. Before I even heard... uh, note from the album i was attracted to that cover because it just felt like a film it felt like something intriguing that i'd be into and i'll be honest i think i ripped that cd and put on my ipod and absolutely rinsed that album i loved it so much and was very impactful to me and that was my first introduction to him and then when he came back as blood orange my first introduction because i was heavy into the blogs in that day was that he performed on It's on with Alexa Chung, her TV show on MTV. And he performed a song called Forget It in a Wizard Costume. Now, I've tried to find this clip on the internet and I can't find it anyway, but that was an early demo and an early experimentation into Blood Orange. And I think he came out as a wizard because he was still trying to figure out who he was and if this was his next project. But I was absolutely addicted to that song, Forget It, and ended up coming out a couple years, I think, later on his first album, Coastal Grooves. I think it's track one. But when I heard that song, I was definitely hooked into the world of what was going to be Blood Orange. The next place that really meant something to me was when I, maybe on Facebook, there was a clip of him, Solange, and Theophilus London in the studio where they were vibing to the beat for what ended up becoming the song Flying Overseas. It was a really sludgy, slow, bassy track that was all drawn out and prolonged. And I remember being addicted to this little clip. You know how you get with songs like that. You just keep replaying it and replaying it and replaying it and I was desperate to find that song it came out maybe a couple years later it came out in 2010 Flying Overseas is out and is under Theophilus London's name but was co-written by him Theophilus London 
and Solange. And then finally, the icing on the cake, the one that sealed the deal for me to be a Dev Heinzian fan, a Blood Orange fan, a Blood Orange lifer was the release of Sky Ferreira's Everything Is Embarrassing. In my opinion, one of the best written pop songs of all time. When I heard that song come out and it had that Dev Heinz Blood Orange signature sound on it, and it was such an epic 80s-esque, Blondie-esque sound to this modern pop song, I was hooked and I was on Blood Orange for life. So let's talk about his influences, who he attracted into his world, what he was attracted to at this point in terms of the influences. And I have to admit, when I'm doing my research, I don't think anyone has gone as deep as I'm about to in terms of the references that I think he had across his career. So I'm excited to present this to you because I think I've done a pretty good job if I do say so myself. But the first one is Prince. There's so many similarities, not only in terms of the vocal, but they are both multi-instrumentalist writers, producers, singers. I would almost say Blood Orange is like a lo-fi version of Prince in a sense. He's also in the same kind of very illustrious producer artist world. He is also very closely aligned with Stevie Wonder, more so 80s Stevie Wonder, but he often talks about the kind of impressionist, more experimental sounds of Stevie Wonder that I love. There's a song called EVP from Blood Orange that is very much an intersection between Prince and Stevie. But my favorite reference that I don't think anyone has picked up on is Yazoo or Yaz if you're in the US, a British male-female duo from the 80s. You know that song you might remember from, I think it was in Napoleon Dynamite, the song Only You? That song I feel like is the template for the modern Dev Hines sound. Looking from a window above, it's like a story of love. And fun because he plays around a lot with the male-female interaction, which I will get onto later. He's also a man of his time. And as a Lightspeed Champion, as Test Icicles, I think that his references were in the post-hardcore emo scene. Just look at how he dressed back in those days, that kind of hipster, moppy, straight hair look. And you could look no further than from first to last, Skrillex's first band and the song Emily to being another clear reference to the early sound of Blood Orange. Lightspeed Champion is like an acoustic version of a post-hardcore group, I think. He takes a lot of influence from that. Doesn't talk about it as much, but clearly, if you look at how he dressed, was clearly influenced by that subculture back in the day. Another reference, which I think is really fun, is Stars. Do you guys remember Stars? There was a big song called Your Ex-Lover Is Dead, which again, has that interplay of male-female, and I feel like is another key point in the constellation of the Dev Hines sound. The 
A big foundation to his sound, I think, is that post-punk revival, that dance rock revival. So you have artists like Block Party of VHS or Beta, yeah, yeah, yes, that forts of the floor post-punky rock sound because he has this kind of driving dance element to him. And he existed in that mid-2000s world where all these kind of Kelly was coming up, Karen O was coming up. He was part of that world, but because he came from that emo background, I think he blended it more with R&B than he did with rock. So let's go with other references or inspirations. He's got many, but I think this is what's so special about him is that he has so many different references from so many different eras. So in the 80s, I think he pulls a lot from the atmospheric synth sound as well as the backing vocals and the vocals themselves. So we can look at people like Brian Ferry and Roxy Music. We can look at Robert Smith and The Cure for sure. I think his kind of driving guitar work has a lot of references of The Police. In terms of pop vocal, I could point to George Michael. In terms of the more danceable pop, we could look to Talking Heads. To the more art pop, we can look at Arthur Russell and Talk Talk. To the more soulful and sensual sounds of things, we have Sade. And then to the more pop dance sounds, we have references of Madonna, for sure. If I go quickly through the 90s, I can definitely hear influence of Fiona Apple. I can definitely hear references in some tracks, interestingly, to G-Funk. There's a lot of hip-hop influences. He Obviously, he had Project Pat on one of his songs, on one of his records. And he also, I feel like, has a Jay Dilla nod, a kind of collage-type sound to his music as well. And of course, to round it out, he also is influenced by classical music, being classically trained, whether it's Bach, whether it's Debussy, whether it's Philip Glass, he does a lot of circular piano work. He also is a huge fan of Yo-Yo Ma, but hey, let's be honest, who isn't? And then lastly, he's a huge jazz head as well. So Mingus, Miles Davis, what have you, he's a big fan. So now I wanna talk about the magnetism in particular, the magnetism that attracted people into his world and built up the context and the world that is Dev Hines. Because I feel like he has talked about being quite serendipitous how he does things. He doesn't just go into the studio and write for anyone. He allows things to happen naturally. He tells this story often about him borrowing instruments from people and hiring them because I think he doesn't like to be a musician that just sets up and records and thinks really hard about it and is surrounded by instruments all the time. I think he likes to make his music as inspired by his life itself. And if he's got nothing to write about, he's not gonna make music. But when he does and he's inspired, 
He does. And I think that magnetism has drawn into different worlds that has created the identity of Blood Orange. So the first relationship that I think is really symbiotic is Domino Records, which he was with since the beginning of Test Icicles up until his last album, Black Negro, which surprisingly he released his recent EP for songs with RCA. So I wonder if that's over. But I think that having a label that supported him through three different identities shows how much trust he had in developing his identity and having the backing of a label, which I think is so important to an artist's legacy. Similarly, he was also attracting people that found him interesting who were also really influential. He was friends with Adele early on. He was also recording music with Florence from Florence and the Machine early on. And I think that you don't just stumble upon these people if there isn't a mutual respect to the artistry. And I think that the most important potentially person in his career in terms of developing to him to who he is now is Theophilus London, who I could do a whole series on and I might one day because I was a huge fan of Theophilus London, a Trinidadian rapper, producer that was the man about town in New York in the mid 2000s and put out some amazing mixed tapes. You've got to check them out, whether it's This Charming Man or I Want You or Lover's Holiday. He was very much embraced by the fashion world because he was so cool and really original because he was blending dance music with trap, with classic hip hop, with calypso. And he brought this new sound to alternative R&B and hip hop that hadn't been seen up until that time. And so Dev Hines met Theophilus London as he moved to New York and they hit it off immediately. And Dev ended up working on his mixtape called Lover's Holiday. So clearly he said himself that he being around people like Theophilus London allowed him to be more comfortable and confident in his decisions to become the artist that he is. And then that magnetism or law of attraction brought him to Solange. So he was introduced to Solange from Theophilus London and they hit it off immediately. And now there's a lot of stories and articles about how there was a very public falling out. I think critics and fans alike were sort of attributing Solange's new sounds to Blood Orange because Blood Orange worked a lot on one of her early records and he was the writer producer on her breakout single called Losing You. And I think there might have been some insinuation that he was really the brains behind that sound. And they had a very public falling out. I think it was on Twitter. But I think it's a shame because I think that maybe if they were able to step back a little bit from it, that they would have seen that they were both inspired by each other and they kind of needed each other at that point. Sure, I think that a lot of the impressionist R&B that Solange does probably was influenced by Blood Orange and Dev Hines, but I think they diverted in different directions. And that law of attraction also brought Dev Hines into the writer and producer world. So he said that he started writing by accident because someone said, hey, I would like to write with Lightspeed Champion. And he was like, oh, I've never done that before. And then that turned into him being a very prolific writer for people like Kylie Rae Jepsen, for Kylie Minogue, for ASAP Rocky, for Sky Ferreira, for Mac Miller, for Paul McCartney. He's written for so many people. And I think that by being a person that is allowing people into his space and allowing things to happen naturally. He's been able to develop these relationships with these really, really incredible, iconic artists that have this roster to him that has allowed him to probably take the time he wants around the music that he puts out. 
The next chapter is around the magnetism of New York. I think that he was very much inspired by New York and attracted to New York. He said that he didn't never move to New York. He just was there and then decided to stay. And I think what's important about Blood Orange's sound is that I don't think Blood Orange could have come from America. He has this transatlantic sound, a very global sound, but then New York has definitely been the muse to Blood Orange throughout his career. Look at the cover art of a lot of his records. Look at the photo shoots that he's done. It's very much with the backdrop of New York. He likes being inspired by and around the people of New York. And look no further than some of the field recordings or diegetic sounds in his albums of sirens, of conversations around New York. You can tell that this muse and this attraction to New York is a key component to the identity of the eventual sound of Dev Hines. Next up, I believe that he is really attracted to, and what we are attracted to, this idea of fluidity, of identity, of sound, of production. His fluidity in how he expresses himself is really important to the foundation of Dev Hines. For example, he's very fluid in his femininity. I think that he definitely exists on the more feminine side of R&B as a male artist. I would say that the more masculine side to his sound is in that post-hardcore emo kind of drivingness to the sound. But then also he said himself that he is very okay with having someone singing for him because he doesn't believe his voice is the strongest. He said it's a, li a little bit weak, this voice. Because he's a writer, because he's a producer, he will hand the reins over in many cases to a lead female singer in a lot of his songs. And that has allowed more of a broad scope when it comes to the music that he puts out. And I think that shows a lot of humility because I think a lot of artists wouldn't be comfortable with that. He, I don't think, he, I think he's fairly fluid with how he expresses his voice, whether it's through having spoken word artists or poems or sounds of the environment or excerpts and samples from his world that feed into the identity of the sound of Blood Orange. He is so flexible and fluid with that expression that he is able to tap into whatever is necessary to get what he wants out of it to the point where he's also a art director he's also a creative director he's also a director and he's also an editor he is one of the very few that is able to really hone the visual expression of his sound so he said that he edits his own music videos and he sometimes ghost edits other people's music videos which is really interesting and i think that the fluidity to his identity is really important that he's not stuck being like hey i'm a rapper hey i'm a performer on stage with a guitar he's like I will move throughout this space. I'll move throughout New York. I will move throughout these different spaces and I will find the best way to express myself as an artist to the point where, quite risky, but because he has a ballet background, was a dancer as well in his music video, which is another surprising element to his world. I think we find him magnetic because he also is quite private. And he says a lot of that is because he doesn't enjoy doing it and he can get quite anxious around it. But I think that he was also quite protective of how he is seen as an artist. I don't think he's out there too much trying to promote his work and answer what his favorite meal is a hundred times or who he wishes he could collaborate with. And when I did research, I was trying to find interviews with him and there are very few because I think that he likes to put out as much of his thoughts through the music. And I think that really adds to his timelessness. Interrupting the podcast to present you the sponsor of this week's episode, which is Turntable Lab. They even gifted me a t-shirt that I can wear. Not, not for this. I'm just wearing it today, coincidentally. But Turntable Lab is the trusted source 
of everything audio gear and equipment for hi-fi enthusiasts or beginners or people like myself cables turntables speakers whatever you need that is in the hi-fi world you can get it at turntablelab.com they also have the lab which houses over a hundred thousand records which is insane i wonder how many copies of midnights they have and you could get 10 percent off with their four or more deals so obviously by four or more records get 10 percent off your final purchase and takes the edge off when it comes to postage and whatnot so you can head to turntablelab.com or forward slash Derek at the end of that to look at my selections of things that I would buy or things that I own if you want a little beginner's guide to how to get started with building your hi-fi up. So check it out, support the sponsor that supports the pod and back to the episode. And it goes without saying that the influence he's had on the industry has been great because he has influenced basically this whole world of art R&B or alternative R&B that you could list out a whole long list from Steve Lacey to Conan Mockinson, who they did a collaborative EP in, I think it was 2015, to Tyler the Creator, to Omar Apollo, to Brockhampton, to Solange. I think that this more art school style of R&B, I think that he has had a huge hand in, and I think that he's probably an artist, artist in that way. I've been thinking a lot about his legacy and how he will be seen over time. And I think because he's so low key and not someone that's out there as a pop star playing like closing stages or anything like that and like live performances, like closing Coachella or anything, I would see him in a world of like a Quincy Jones or a Herbie Hancock or even a Sakamoto or a Philip Glass from a composition point of view. I think he wears all those hats really well. He's clearly successful as a solo artist. He's clearly successful as a producer, as all of these artists are. He's also successful as a film composer, which I think we've only scratched the surface of. And I think we're probably not even reached the peak in terms of his production of his composition. And I'm really excited to see where that lands. <sighs> that was a rapid fire analysis of Dev Hines and Blood Orange. And hopefully I've done it justice in a short amount of time. I tried to fit in as much as possible. And I think that ultimately he is someone that has allowed things to happen naturally. And that has meant that he's attracted all of us to his work through attracting the worlds that he became part of through trusting in his own process, trusting in his abilities and going with the flow. I also like that he's been able to start and stop different identities of different artists because I do definitely see a separation between Lightspeed Champion and Blood Orange and also Dev Hines, the composer and writer as well. They're clear, distinct identities, but it's also still the same person. I don't feel like they are separate characters, if you will, just different eras with different names. And I think the best way, the absolute best way to sum it up is through this quote from my former intern, Niels. Niels is a German student who reached out to want to be an intern for me, and I didn't really know if I needed one. But he kept asking and I was like, okay, cool. And I asked him to do some research for me for Dev Hines months and months and months ago when I wanted to do this episode and then chickened out of doing it. And at the end of his research, Niels wrote this. Assessing his releases in terms of its importance was difficult for me. Most of the reviews and critics were always saying that the newest album was his most important one. But the next release was again equally or even more important. And I think that says a lot about him as an artist. I think that... He is so important that everyone recognizes at the time how significant these records are, how interesting, innovative, special they are. But then he puts out something else. And then it's like, oh, 
wow, this is even better. And I think that Dev Hines, like I said, I can see a number one album on the horizon. I can see him getting his flowers. He gets his flowers. People love and respect him, but I don't think that he is a household name that he deserves to be. But I am not worried about him in his long-term game getting his flowers because he is only going to get better. And I really, this is going to sound weird, but I really look forward to enjoying the next 30 years of the Dev Hines career because I feel like we're going to have many, many great albums to come. Do you think I covered all the necessary grounds and basis of Dev Hines? What have I missed? What do you love about him? I'd love to know in the comments, but please let me know your thoughts. Thank you so much for listening. As always, this has been Derek G Speaks Volumes. See you next week.